Tom, I appreciate you taking time to uh, to meet with me today. We we had a chance to talk earlier today, and it was really delightful. Uh, I learned a lot, and I, I had a chance to talk with my wife after you and I met this morning, and I told her, uh, I was like, Tom is just ultra smart, and I was just trying to keep up most of the conversation. <laughs> so... I, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you again. Uh, hopefully, um, hopefully we, we have a, a great time with one another today. You, you've just killed it. Now she'll never want to talk to me. So <laughs> it, it was like, I just kept telling her, I was like, I just tried to keep up. Um, but it was amazing. And, and so I think that, uh, our audience is going to really learn a lot from, uh, the conversation that we have right now. So I'm super excited that you are willing to talk and, uh, by this point uh, in the in the series of interviews, I, I think our audience knows what we're talking about. So, uh, really, this interview series was sparked by uh, what was happening at, at ABAI. Really, the I'd say the genesis of that was for at least me and, and many others was seeing uh, Jonathan and Amy's letter, which they never intended anyone to see, and uh, caused many of us to just stop and think, like, well, what's happening? And so. I thought it would be helpful for uh, our scientific community for us to gather information from people who have immense context and uh, understanding of our field. And so uh, you you were one of the individuals that I thought would be super helpful to meet with. So, you know, first and foremost, just coming like to start our interview, I know that you wanted to share what your position was uh, in, in this matter. So I'd love to give you that opportunity to uh, to share your position as, as we get into the interview. You know, I'm probably going to get pretty geeky, so it's, it's, I think it's really important for me to just stay right out. And anybody who wants to leave after they hear this, they can leave. But I, I am 99.99% like anti-contingent electric skin shock. I just don't see how it will be sustainable for human beings to continue to use this particular technology doesn't mean that it hasn't helped or hasn't worked in some context, but it just doesn't seem to me to be sustainable in any way, shape, or form. And I'll explain why as we get going. Yeah, yeah. You know, Tom, I was, uh, after we talked this morning, I had a bunch of things I was doing. Uh, and then while I, I took a quick break uh, for lunch and I was reading a book, and it was the it was the uh, former PepsiCo CEO. And in the, it just so happened in this chapter, she was she was writing about how at PepsiCo she ended up hiring her one of her biggest critics, and uh, she hired this critic because she said, "I want a critic in my tent." And, and the critic really uh, criticized PepsiCo for their environmental impact, and she kept talking about their current practices and how they were unsustainable. And it, it made me think of our conversation this morning, and, and and I was and I was hopeful that we you know we would get the opportunity to talk about that. But it's like, is this a sustainable practice for us? And and I think. People like you are are uh, really you know critical to that conversation. So I appreciate you bringing up that point regarding uh, sustainability. So this morning we also had a chance to talk about your experience. So I'd love for you to share with with our audience your experiences and uh, the context, or you know the the yeah the context with which you you have in speaking into this situation uh, regarding uh, CSS. It's, 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 it's fair. I, you know, I, I came into this field in 2000 and uh, I inherited as a behavior analyst at that time uncredentialed uh, 
working in a very, very large organization in Colorado, a lot of cases. I inherited a bunch of cases that a previous person who had worked in my position had instituted punishment plans for. And in working through these punishment plans and seeing whether they were necessary or not, I found by and large they weren't. And I worked with some pretty pretty serious issues. You know, I, I, I and, and let me just, you know, before I forget, I just need to say thank you. I'll talk, I'll talk about my those cases, but I, I just want to say thank you to you, Robbie, for initiating this whole conversation series with with people. This is extraordinary. This is really important. And I also want to say thank you to uh, all of the people, all the autistic people who have given their voices to this issue for so long, and our field just hasn't been listening. And so that people are now listening, I think, is going to make a difference. And so thank you to those people, the neurodiverse community that has just continued to make their voices heard until they truly are being heard. And I also want to say thank you to all of my colleagues who have kind of walked through this conversation uh, together with me over the past couple of However many months and years uh, some of us have been talking about this, Jen McComas, uh, Jennifer Zarcone, Josh Pritchard, Jonathan Tarbox, Amy Odom, um, Jordan Belisle, the list goes on. And, and I'm sorry for all the people whose names I'm not remembering to mention at this moment, but it is important that I, that I say thank you to all the people who have had this conversation, who have brought important information to the field. So, I mean, I, I worked with these cases like this one person who she enucleated herself. She had Bell's palsy on half of her face. And so it was a kind of weird kind of thing for her to touch her face because she had a, the history of having sensation. Now she doesn't, but she kind of does. And she stuck her finger into her eyeball to the second knuckle and popped her eyeball out. And I worked with another person who bit her provider's finger off. And I worked with another woman who had Down syndrome, very, 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 very sweet person who lived semi-independently, worked in the community, and she groomed a young girl and a 12-year-old girl and the mother to the point that she was allowed to have a independent sleepover date with this little girl. And she violently sexually abused this girl assaulted her very, very intensely, and then came to tell me about it the next day. And so I had to take her to the police and walk her through the court system, and the court system spit her back to us. And they knew the prison system had no ability to handle working with a person with Down syndrome who was that dangerous. And so we just had to provide 24-7 supervision. And every single staff person who we hired had to go through this very rigorous training that included some stuff from a police department person who was willing to work with us and a lot of training on what this kind of grooming looks like. Every single one of those staff people that we hired got groomed. I mean, they just, they would fall into it, you know, she just looked like such a sweet person. All of a sudden she's feeling their genitals and grabbing them and, you know, and it's just, I've seen a lot of cases that uh, were very serious and a couple of them were very seriously life-threatening. And one of them was a person who was self-mutilating and uh, was doing it to such a degree that uh, 
there was a real likelihood, a very serious likelihood that he would uh, chop off part of his body and uh, bleed out. And uh, he was verbal. Uh, he had an intellectual disability, but he was verbal. And he was asking, please help me stop, make me stop. And he was saying, I heard about skin shock. I want this. And, and his family was asking for it. I'm going back 20 years. So, you know, the field was a very different place and I didn't know anything, but I knew that this was life-threatening. And uh, so the people that I worked with and I, we went through the paces with Human Resource Committee and eventually the Human Rights Committee said that this would be the one case in a million that this would be worthwhile. And that's what we did and it worked and we saved his life. And, but that, leads me to some very important and very serious questions. And uh, I don't know how much you want me to just keep on rambling. You can ask me questions if you want to. But No, 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 that's, that's super helpful. Um, so was and, your... and if, if I could just say, Robbie, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. If I can just say, like, for absolutely none of those cases did I ever uh, find that I needed to use any kind of punishment procedure whatsoever. I was yeah. able to make use of, I mean, it, some, sometimes it took a while. And, 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 I, and initially, my, you know, my first default was to go to punishment procedures, but I learned I didn't have to. And I found other ways to work these cases. Yeah. I'm curious, Tom, in the one case where <clears throat> y'all used uh, contingent shock with this one individual who was essentially asking for it because he just, he, he, he wanted to stop engaging in the behavior that he was engaging in. Uh, you, you mentioned that there were numerous processes or processes in place for, for that. What was that like exactly? Was that like a, uh, you know, what time frame? how long did it take to go through those processes? Can you just give us a little bit of context on what those different committees were like and, and the approval process to, to utilize that strategy? Yeah, it was the company and uh, the human rights committee. And that's it. And I tell you what it didn't have that I think that probably if this is ever going to be used anywhere, and I don't think that it should, and I'll explain why in a minute, but if, if it were, it would need to have like a much higher level of independent review. Human Rights Committee is awesome. It is uh, federally mandated, that's pretty cool. And the company that we worked with did have like its own kind of vetting procedure and that was really cool. But, uh, you know, I think a, a much, much higher degree of scrutiny. We didn't have medical oversight in a way that would have, uh, I think is, is really necessary. We didn't have um, a, technology for doing functional analysis with people who were that verbal at that time that I was aware of. And there were many steps that could be done, should be done today before going down that road. And none of that was present. And I, so that leads me to a very important question that I, I keep asking myself and other people like you know what if there was like a really really strong independent commission that was financially not affiliated with any organization that is involved in the process 
whatsoever. And skilled and diverse and capable of asking the really hard questions. And as I've thought more and more about this, I just think, you know, no. I mean, because who oversees the overseers? And who oversees the overseers of the overseers is the question that you have to ask. There, there's always contingencies in place for human beings in these positions of power. You know, uh, you go down this road and you've got a psychological association that oversees psychologists who go to Gitmo and use torture procedures. At some point, you have to pull back and say, who oversees the overseers and what are the contingencies? And maybe, maybe, where does this end? Yeah. You know, one thing I've, I've learned uh, as I, this really, this really helped me when I, when I left education and I started working in private practice. So I started my career working in public schools with, uh, you know, with, with, with kids with autism. And I did that for a number of years before then I transitioned into private practice. And it was at that point when I started really looking outside of behavior analysis for support, you know, for learning, for knowledge. I wanted to know how to, how to, uh, to build an organization and I wanted to know how to uh, uh, encourage healthy culture. And I, I wanted to just grow in a lot of areas that were, you know, really critical to my success as a behavior analyst in this setting. And uh, so I learned a lot from like other disciplines and other fields. And I wonder if in this, it, it, with this example specifically, with this independent board, I wonder if there's any other models that we can learn from, whether it's like in, uh, in other aspects of healthcare or like, I just, I, I have to think that there, there's a model that behavior, behavior analysts can learn from in terms of how we just ensure ethical, uh, ethical use of a strategy if and when that seems appropriate. Because I think that's our, I think that's our biggest concern. Like you have a much deeper understanding of this issue, but for those of us who are just starting to understand what's happening, it's like, what was the oversight and what was the decision-making process and how did we get to this point and what strategies were used? And so I think that's where, like, I love this concept of having an independent board, and I have to think that there are other models that we can learn from. Do you know of anything that's that exists currently that 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 our community can learn from in terms of uh, modeling after uh, a, a committee or or organization like that? I really don't. And and, and again, I'm I where I've come to is that I don't know that there is such a thing as yeah. such an independent commission that because of that those layers right like who's overseeing because, the overseers and yeah because because the contingencies always always um guide at some point the maintenance of a field of business that uh that is i don't know that i could ever see that working i don't not mm. saying that it never could but i i yeah. don't believe it is possible and but it, if 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 an organization is going to be using any behavior analytic practices i think that an internal ethics review committee as well as ongoing ethics conversations with everybody involved in the organization is really important and i'm talking about people receiving services and stakeholders and staff people at all levels and senior leadership engaged in inquiry, ongoing asking ourselves and each other, 
do we have the systems in place? Is this the right thing to do? And for whatever practices that we're engaging in, there are, and this goes beyond the scope of what we're aiming to talk about today, but every single company that is facing the world today is facing a very different set of ethical concerns than any ethics book that I know of. And, uh, you know, there are some very good ethics books out there today for the behavior analytic community. I mean, they've proliferated in the last couple of years and it's awesome. And yet the ethics questions that people are facing in the field today haven't really made it into the textbooks yet. Right. So the answer seems to me to be ongoing dialogue and inquiry and, and asking ourselves, you know, what do I do about data collection in this situation? What do I do about data mm -hmm. collection in this situation? What do we do about a parent who says they don't want to work with this person because they're of this particular group? And what do we deal with? You know, the, these kinds of things are pressing. And I think an ongoing inquiry is part of the solution, but not to the issue of contingent skin shock. I don't think that, I think, I don't think that is where you'll find the answers. You mentioned, you, you mentioned one thing that I want to, I want to comment on. You, 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 you reference behavioral systems or not behavioral systems, but you reference systems. And, uh, I, I, I wrote about behavioral systems analysis, uh, uh, in my dissertation. And, uh, I talked with Josh about this actually recently, Josh Pritchard, uh, when we had kind of an informal conversation, and he and I were both uh, similarly thinking that, you know, organizations that use strategies like this, aversive, uh, punitive procedures, need to really uh, evaluate their, their systems and process to ensure that uh, we are setting that ethical uh, bar very high, right? And there must be, there must be systems that we, can, that we can build and we can put into place to just protect the people that we're serving. Um, and also encourage like inquiry and encourage dialogue. Like I, I, I just think organizationally we could we could build the models better to encourage or promote or evoke the the ethical behavior that that essentially we we all want to you know the direction that we want to move in as a field with regards to things like this. Well, and how we get the the strategies in place that are going to keep us from ever needing to ask the question of whether this is contingent skin shock is the answer. If we are going through the kind of, and it, and from a behavioral systems analysis perspective, it's much bigger than the organization. It's the macro, the macroeconomic system to put it in, in, in lay terms, what we're looking at is these externalities that are impinging in upon the world in which people uh, who are receiving services are living. And yeah. once we start looking at a very big picture at our society, it's not the individual who's autistic that really needs to change. It's the world that needs to change. And we need to advocate and help the world change so that folks that we're working with don't end up in a place where they are subject to a question, should we be using contingent skin shock? And it is important to kind of take into consideration what demographic ends up in that place, what skin color, what 
ethnicity, what race, what gender, these things are not coincidental. Yeah, this morning you and I talked about those cultural practices, and I'm glad you you pulled me out, Tom. I was I was really focused on the organization, and 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 brilliantly you said, Rob, that's one part, but look look here, right? Like you pulled me out of my organizational. You know, I got I got to CEO. I, I got I, I got my CEO mind on, and I was thinking organization, and you said, No, Rob, I got to pull you out, buddy. It's cultural practices. I love that. So thank you for reminding me where I needed to be thinking in that moment. That was great. So speaking of how we got here, one of the questions that I wanted to talk to you about was that exact question. Like, how did we get here? I think what I learned this morning from you is that you have a really rich understanding of, of the, of the field. So how did we get here? How did we get here? Yeah. You know, uh, we're all Skinner's grandkids, right? And I, I think it, I think one of the, Inside of social issues and social issue conflicts, it's really easy to go to uh, us versus them. They're the bad guys. We're the good people. And if you kind of zoom out and look at this in a really big way, we're all Skinner's grandkids. And B.F. Skinner, and this is where I get kind of geeky, but I think that it's important to kind of know, how did our field get here? You know, Skinner wrote the stuff that he wrote around the time that Thorsten Veblen wrote The Theory of the Leisure Class. He was a sociologist. He was interested in using science to help humanity. He said, if you turn the management of human welfare over to scientists, science is going to make it so that we only have to work four hours a day, four days a week. What a cool idea. Skinner loved it. Skinner references uh, Veblen four times in, in Walden too. He also talks about Edward Bellamy. Now, Edward Bellamy wrote this book, Looking Backwards. And it's about this guy who in 1930s, he goes to sleep one night and he wakes up and it's 2000. And Somebody who's very kind in the year 2000 says, oh, well, we better bring you up to speed because the world's a little bit different now than it was when you went to bed. And check it out. We don't use money anymore. We've done away with capitalism. We've got kind of like a scientific socialism going on here. And uh, everybody works to the best of their ability. And it's, it's all good, you know. And Skinner read this book and he was like, whoa, this guy's way ahead of his time. And he rewrote that book in behavioral language. It's called Walden Two. And Bellamy didn't stop with looking backwards. He founded a political movement called technocracy. Technocracy was kind of all the rage for about 10 years in the 1930s and early 40s until people kind of realized, wait a minute, the technocrats are like these scientists who are efficiency experts and they're gonna efficiency me out of my job. I don't want that. So the technocrats kind of went away. They went away until the 1980s when the Trilateral Commission came into vogue. That was a group of multinational organizations that kind of saw the writing on the wall so that the, saw that we were entering into a new era of a global economy. 
and they started to think we need to band together to shape the global economy. And they got a ton of funding from the Reagan administration and uh, right-wing think tanks, and they started offering their technocratic services to nations, uh, uh, developing nations all over the world. And so you started to see these these uh, ministers of finance and ministers of economic development and ministers of political policy and uh, ministers when none of that worked, ministers of militarism in all these company, countries that uh, who were employed by these very gigantic capitalist companies. So technocracy never really went away and it also didn't go away in behavior science. Skinner loved Veblen and loved Bellamy and wrote about them and developed, I think, a technocratic behavior analytics solution. Now he, I think, was brilliantly interested in saving the world and saving our species and saving our culture. And he wanted to use science for that end. And he had a lot of very important good recommendations around those, those, those ends that I probably, I hope we have time that I can, I can talk about. But one of the things I think that I think he missed. One of the things, the really good things that Skinner said is that scientists need to lay bare their assumptions, put them out on a table. And he was very good at delineating his assumptions, determinism, empiricism, experimentation, replication, the list goes on. Those were the things that Skinner was able to articulate. One of the things that he m might have articulated that would have helped us was scientism, 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 and technocracy. And us being Skinner's grandkids, we have kind of internalized that. And it is a, it's an unexamined assumption of ours. Our field has kind of assumed that we are the experts, we're the scientists, we have the solutions for other people. We have the solutions for other people. And if they would just listen to us. And I think that that has led us to a place that is unsustainable. So how did we get here? We got here because we didn't acknowledge our assumption of technocracy. And that this we are the experts who have the solution for other people goes unacknowledged is the extent to which we close our ears when people are saying to us, this practice is unacceptable. So, Tom, on the, on the back end of that, that part of our conversation, where do we go from this point? Like, where do you want to take the conversation? Uh, we, you know, we, we talked about a number of things earlier today. Um, I'd, I'd still love to talk through you know, what you do with behaviors of concern that are life-threatening. Uh, but I'm open to kind of following your lead on, on where you want to go next. We have, you know, we have a number of things that we could talk about, but uh, where would you like to take this? 
Well, I think you, you bring up a really important point. Like, what do we do with life-threatening behavior? And I really was worried for the guy that I was working with that I was going to find him bled out. And yeah. uh, um, and certainly, you know, uh, things about his life were changing very rapidly and becoming worse and worse. And 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 so, what what do we do when humans that we are asked to help are engaging in life-threatening behaviors, and we have an opportunity to make use of a technology that will very rapidly stop those behaviors? Um, the 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 question that uh, shows up for me is, you know, sometimes they're asking for help. Very frequently, their parents are asking for help, and very frequently, when their parents see how rapidly that goes away, they really want what this is. And many of the people who are being served in those situations had previously been getting very high doses of anti-psychotic uh, uh, medication that fundamentally made them uh, incapable of having conversations incapable of staying awake. They would just be drooling all, all over themselves all day long. They would be developing tardive dyskinesia. Their uh, capacity to engage with the world was very, very, very limited. Or they were in, in mechanical restraints. And so, you know, when faced with the question of what do we do with behavior that is truly life-threatening for self or others and where it is possible to use something that could potentially eliminate the need for very heavy doses of of stifling medications and mechanical restraints i'm not talking about the kind of medications that you know you use to get through the day when you've got like you know, depression or something. I'm talking about like, like really serious, like, like, like uh, sedating medications. Um, the 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 question, the alternative question, is also really important to ask, which is, if it's possible that in saving someone's life this way using this technology, we are also imposing upon them psychological trauma that is lifelong for the rest of their lives then can't we go back to the drawing board just a little bit longer and find something else that might work better, at least as well? And I do think there are some other things that haven't yet been well explored. Yeah, I, I, mentioned, I mentioned to you earlier today when we spoke that I read through uh, uh, the Zarconi paper and I got, I got to the the bottom towards the bottom and it, and it just highlighted the like adverse and unwanted side effects uh, or undesirable side effects of the CSS. And it was interesting as I read through the, the list of side effects, I, I noticed in that, like in that moment, even my heart, like I felt more anxious reading through that list, just thinking like, my goodness, like it's, it's just, so that that causes me to think, and then you and I talked about it this morning. Like, what are the like? What are what data do we have? What do we know about these side effects? And uh, and so, in light of the side effects, in light of the 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 benefits that we could seemingly draw when it's such a life threatening situation that contingent shock is appropriate. It's like I'm still wrestling as you're 
as your, you know, your, your typical practicing BCBA, not that I would ever use contingent shock, but like I'm in a scientific community where that, you know, that shows up at our national conference. Right. So it's like, I'm still struggling with like that tension of, is this appropriate? What are the side effects? What all, what are the alternatives? Do we have enough information? Do we even know enough about these side effects to inform what we do next? So that's still a question that I have. And I, I, you know, I, I hope that we'll have more answers as we continue these interviews and learn more and more, but it could just be that I'm naive and I just haven't learned enough, which is absolutely true. But I still feel that I feel unsettled about it. I should say that. That's a, I think that's a good place for all of us to be. I want to say thank you to Jen Zarcone for writing her review of the literature. I also want to say thank you to Nate Blankenship and John O'Neill, who wrote the GRC literature review. You have some things to compare. I've read through all, and my lab and I kind of yeah. very carefully went through all of the JRC publications, and uh, we read Jen's review. We had Jen come to the lab and talk to us. We read the JRC review. Um, we had Josh Pritchard come to our lab and, and talk to us. And I, and I would say that I, you know, one of the things that, that remains, I think, salient for me is that there are short-term benefits, but there are long-term problems. And if the long-term problems make life miserable, then I don't know that the short-term benefits outweigh them. Psychological distress at the level that I am hearing is I listen to people who have undergone these procedures for a very long time seems to me to be worse than the alternative. And that's my subjective opinion, but I think that the objective stance is we need to go back to the drawing board and do more work to come up with alternatives. And I do think there are some things to explore that have not yet been explored to the extent that they should be. I also, you know, I just have to bring up an additional issue here, which is what about the situations where like this guy that I worked with, who he, he was asking, what about <laughs> situations where somebody is giving their consent and where somebody who maybe the courts have deemed is not capable of giving their consent is still giving assent. And what if we put together a procedure where they had the capacity to press some kind of a lever or give us some kind of contextual cue where they are no longer giving their assent? I mean, couldn't we develop a, a, a way of making use of this technology in a way that makes use of that, that provides people with the opportunity to uh, to give and withdraw their assent. And I've looked at this from a lot of different angles, and the, the, the place where I end up in asking that, and, and, and I have to ask, I have to thank my buddy Jordan who came up with this idea. And then I was like, yes, I have to look at it from this perspective, which is that, yeah, you know, what if, what if, what if it was me? And what if I went to you um, and I said, Robbie, I'm engaging in this horrific behavior and, uh, uh I want you to euthanize me. And, uh, is that okay? Like, would you do that? And what if I, what if I said to you, like, 
and you asked me what that her- horrific behavior is, and you thought that you know I was sexually abusing little children or something like that, and I said to you, uh, I'm scratching my nipple. But I really want you to put an end to this. Just euthanize me. Would you still say yes? You see, this question becomes very, very complicated. And you can establish some kind of independent profession that is overseeing this, but then you have the independent profession is not really independent after all. And... uh, I mentioned a company that I worked with. Did I, did I, did I say that here, or do I just tell you this earlier? Like, like long before I I started in in behavior analysis for a while, I worked in a mental health clinic, and we were working with people with intellectual disabilities and developmental disabilities who had engaged in sexual misconduct, and uh, um, and this is going back like way, way, way back further into like the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. And, and uh, they were giving cigarettes and pop to people as reinforcers. People were gaining weight and people were losing, losing teeth and stuff like that, you know, but everybody was staying out of jail. So that seemed acceptable back then. And it, but now we know better. We're, we have been able to develop different ways of doing things. So we don't have to go back in time and use draconian measures. We need to be able to come up with different ways of solving these problems. Right, right. Well, Tom, this has been... And, 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 uh, and you might want to ask me, like, you know, like, what, what do I think? Like, what, what is it? And, and yeah. my, I, I mean, I would be telling you a lie if I told you I knew what the answer is. I don't. But I do know one thing. I do know that uh, Amy Zarling has been doing some extraordinary work with people who are sex offenders. And uh, I have been working with people who had previously engaged in gender-based intimate partner violence. That work is ongoing and continuing to get really strong results in Sierra Leone, West Africa. The caveat that I, I have to say is that the work that we're doing in West, in, in West Africa is within a context of a nation that prior to our beginning that work had enacted very, very severe uh, uh, gender-based violence laws. And these gender laws, as they are referred to there, are such that if you get put behind bars, you're not coming out. You're going to spend the rest of your life behind bars, period. There's no parole. And so rich people there, they get out of it by challenging the courts and poor people end up in prison for life. So uh, poor people that that I work with there, they're saying, wow, like I'm doing this stuff. I need to stop. There is a subtle overlay of background of coercion there even if they're coming to, to the organization that is performing this work for help, even if they're coming for help, there's that background of like, there is that element of coercion. Zarling's work is within the context of the correction system. So uh, I haven't seen any of this done without a background of coercion yet. And I really want to see that happen. 
I really want to see. But I do think that acceptance and commitment training conducted by behavior analysts could potentially in some circumstances help, especially if we're making use of it early on enough that we are doing this in a preventive way so we never get to the point where the alternative is skin shock. Well, Tom, this has been uh, really wonderful getting to talk with you. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with the audience before we, we wrap up this, uh, this interview? No, if I could just say thank you to you again for initiating this conversation and uh, to all the people who are listening to this, but most importantly, thank you to uh, the people who have been shouting about this for a very long time and not being listened to. Uh, I hope that we are all listening now. Yeah, we're um, our our aim in doing this is just to bring in, gather information and share that information in the spirit of uh, being good practitioner scientists and uh, helping fill what I'm seeing is a gap in knowledge. Like it just seems like people want information and they want to learn more about what's happening. And so our aim was to try to provide as much information as we could by talking with people who know significantly more than we do. Uh, such as yourself. And, and so it's been, it's been really great getting to just learn from y'all. I, I honestly don't think I know very much more than, than you do. I think that I, I've been grappling with this for a very, very long time and, and nonstop, you know, and, and so I think that, that I've, I've, I've asked a couple of questions and the only reason I bring these questions up is because I think that whatever decision we come to now, people are going to be asking those questions again. Let's say we come to a position where we abolish this. People are gonna ask in the future, what, what, you know, what if you'd had an independent commission overseeing this? What if you uh, were dealing with life-threatening behaviors and everybody wanted it, the parents wanted it, the person wanted it, and they had the opportunity to give and withdraw their assent. And if, you, if, if we're not able to think through these questions in a, clear and systematic way, looking at our propensity to fall into two-dimensional cardboard ideological stances that can easily be ripped up by somebody asking us a question that we haven't asked ourselves, then we're in trouble. Skinner asked us to do one thing that I think is really important. If I could just say one last thing. He said, look, evolution has prepared us for a world that is 500 years in the past. 500,000 years ago, we were running around all day long, gathering food and hunting and uh, uh, making babies that died off. We needed salt to keep us going. We need sugar for fast action. And we needed to procreate enough to make enough offspring to sustain our species. Well, now we have developed a susceptibility to reinforcement by salt and sugar and sex. And what do we do? We sit in front of the computer all day and make babies that we don't have enough formula for. I mean, it's a bad situation. Evolution prepares us for a past that was then, not now. And reinforcement is no different. We do today because we did something similar to it yesterday and worked for us yesterday. And to the extent that it's still working for us today, we keep doing what worked yesterday. The thing is, is the world is slightly different today than it was yesterday. 
And we still keep doing it because it kind of sort of works, but the world keeps on changing and the world keeps on changing. And at some point we're not responding to the world in front of us. We're responding to the world that was, not the world that is. And Skinner said, look, this is a really serious problem. He said, what we need to do is look at what worked in the past, compare it to what's working in the present so that we will be prepared for the future and experiment in the present to make sure. And that's what I'm saying that we need to do. We need to do more experimenting in the present to make sure that we don't have these long-term negative adverse effects of our current practices. And we are seeing some adverse effects of our practices from the past when we weren't paying attention to what are the sustainabilities of what we are doing. And now we are recognizing, I hope, I hope that this is a social validity moment for us, that we're looking to see, crap, our practices are not all as sustainable as we thought they were. We were doing the best that we could, and now it's time for us to do something different. And we need to be looking into what is going to happen down the road. Because otherwise, our science will not survive, our practice will not survive, and what's going to happen to our culture? What's going to happen to our planet? Well, that's only 200 years away <laughs> before we have to deal with that, too. We might as well start now. Let's start. Let's start. This reminds me to draw another parallel from my, you know, my, my OBM background or uh, the, the way in which I, I, I view most issues at times. Uh, it reminds me of the uh, Rumbler and Brash when they said, adapt yeah. or die. Adapt yeah. or die. That's the moment we're in right now. And we've got this but, choice. But, but adapt with an eye towards towards the yeah. future. Like we yeah. have verbal skills. We are not limited to what worked for us before. We can look using our verbal skills at what is likely to work long term. And we need to prepare ourselves. Right. Yeah, rumble well, and, br and, and brush. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. We're, we're counting on you, Tom. We're all looking to you for the answers. So lead us lead us to, to the future no i don't know about that I, I i think that we need to all work together all voices matter all voices at the table let's listen better and do more couldn't agree more and i hope that that that, that spirit is captured in our interviews like we're interviewing multiple people from multiple different backgrounds who have different uh, areas of expertise and perspectives so i really do hope that by the time these interviews are done hopefully in just a matter of days people can sense that we really did try to honor that spirit where everyone's voice should be heard, including autistic people who, as you mentioned, as, as John and Amy mentioned, they've been talking about these things for a very long time. And perhaps we just haven't been listening very well, um, both individually and collectively as a field. So I'm certainly excited for your perspective to be shared. And uh, I'm really grateful that you took the time to, uh, to talk with me. I tried to keep up as best I could, but uh, sometimes that's, that's tough when, when I'm talking to you. Uh, you're too kind. Thanks, Robbie. <laughs> I, I hope I wasn't too geeky. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's for this audience. It's, it's awesome. So I appreciate it, Tom.